0: Hey
1: everyone, welcome to Group Text. I mean, seriously, I adore today's guest who is never afraid to look at someone and say, that pattern is not doing you any favors. Tan France is one of the Queer Eyes Fab Five, the host of Next in Fashion, and the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, Naturally Tan, which I get is... Better than self tanner. Anyway, but he is also (laughs) the producer and host of the Fuse documentary Beauty and the Bleach, which aims to take down the global beauty trend of skin lightening. It's now available to watch on Fuse and Fuse Plus. Please welcome to Group Text, Tan France. Hi. Hi, sweetheart. My pleasure. So I want to talk about Beauty and the Bleach, but then I realized I actually know very little about you. Pre-Queer Eye. Now, Yeah, feel free to correct me. You are of Pakistani descent. Your parents owned a clothing manufacturing business in England. I mean, I'm... Grandparents. What? Your grandparents. My grandparents.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I'm, I have this vision of you crawling around on the floor, looking at the items and deciding which ones just need to go immediately to the outlet.
2: That's basically it. I started out so young with such an opinion on what I thought was cute and not cute. Um, and it just never went away. And then as I got older, I just thought, well, other people need to hear this. Um, and so I just <laughs> continued on, keeping my own such an opinion. Um, but yeah, I always loved clothes from a very young age. And I always understood the power of clothes.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, because pl- we all talk about always clothes, clothes can make a statement. But we'll get to that. Um, what was actually interesting to you as a kid? Was it, because I think about kids like to build things and they like, you know, yeah. Legos and this. And I would think because they really worked in manufacturing, was it originally about putting edges together? What What was it as a kid that, th- the you physical know, part that
2: interested you? So much. Of, I just thought it was fascinating. I mean, I had this really unique insight into garment making. And I mean, I know that many people in other countries, usually third world countries will have access to that. However, in the West, we don't. I don't know any kid in school, my school, that ever understood how how the things that they were wearing were pieced together. And at the factory, I started going there when I was probably seven or eight. And I remember simply thinking, gosh, I just assumed that this grew on trees. I had no idea that it took this whole group of people who were so highly skilled and I understood just how important it was that they only focused on one thing so they could get so many things done uh, within a day so you could produce hundreds and hundreds of garments I just found it so fascinating and you're right when other people were playing with Legos I was figuring out how do you construct this part of a garment so that by the time it's done it is is something that you could wear that you feel beautiful in and so that was what was most fascinating to me it wasn't just that this looks nice that looks nice. It's what will this fabric do when you lay that on someone's body? How will this fabric sew in comparison to that fabric? What will this thread do to that? It, it's stuff that anyone else would probably find so dull, but as a kid, for me, it I thought it was, I thought it was life changing. It was life changing. It clearly has been life changing. Um,
1: and this just popped in my head because I just just reminded me you're saying about fabrics and feel and the way things lay. Did you, like, have a blanket or a stuffed animal as a kid? Because it sounds like you were starting out by being very um, tactile.
2: Yeah. Um, Do you know what? I would love to say I did. My parents were so not those parents. However, I'm now a parent, and I forced a blanket on my child that now he cannot live without, he cannot sleep without. But, no, I didn't have any of those things. However, I do... I do remember the fabrics that my mom wore and they were South Asian clothes. And I always thought they were the most beautiful. Um, and they're the kind of things that I'm inspired by now.
1: It's, it's always so interesting how that gets in your DNA mentally. Oh, yeah. So oh, I, heard, yeah. I heard you designed your first garment at 13. Now feel free to let me know if I'm wrong. And it was a bedazzled denim coat.
2: It was. <laughs> um, so actually I designed it in my head Probably years before, um, and it was a bedazzled gilet. Um, oh, so it was, uh, yes.
1: <laughs> explain to people what that is.
2: So, it's, in America, you'd call it a vest. Yes. Um, but it was basically a jacket without sleeves. And I, uh, I'd wanted to make it for years, but be, even before then. My, so I wrote my book, as you mentioned, Naturally 10, I wrote years ago. This is not a plug for it. It, it was done years ago. We're not, I'm not interested in sales anymore. However, I do, I loved writing it because um, I got to really explore what I was like as a child. I didn't ever think to ask my mom what I was like as a kid. I think I remember what I remember and that's that. But I spoke to my mom and my siblings when I was writing the book saying, tell me everything you can remember from me before I remember And uh, my mom said that from a really young age, she thinks it was probably around about five or six, I used to ask for something to be made. So in my mind, I designed this piece of clothing, which was a black silk shirt with gold buttons. I don't know why that was a thing I desperately wanted, but from a very young age, I asked for that every holiday, whether it was a birthday, our version of Christmas. um, And I don't know who I thought my family were that I thought that they were getting clothes made um, because we were broke. (laughs) There's no way my mom was, my mom had a tailor on hand who was going to have her clothes made. Um, But yeah, I asked for it for a very, very long time. So I started designing very early on.
1: And do you remember the feeling of accomplishment when you finished that first piece that you had designed in your mind so long ago?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, And it was difficult to get there because i had only ever known certain parts of a garment, because that's how a factory works. Um, but I'd spent years and years learning what everyone did. And so by the time I got to 12, 13, I knew how to make a garment pretty well. And so at that point, I was like, okay, now's the time. I've I've learned all I can. And so, yeah, it felt like a real sense of accomplishment. And then at that point, there was no, stop, no stopping me. I made clothes for my siblings. I made clothes for my mom. Yeah, I, I, I felt amazing being able to create something. I've always been a, a person who wanted to create something.
1: Did you ever get that black shirt with the gold buttons?
2: You know, I didn't. And my sister had said when she read my book, she was like, go get it. Like, (laughs) you may never wear it, but go have it made. And every time somebody suggests that, I'm like, oh, yeah, why don't I? At some point, I will get it made.
1: I mean, I have a black shirt with gold buttons.
2: I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I'm probably... I feel like I should send it to you. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm sure Versace has a bunch of them. I I must have seen it on some kind of Versace moment in a magazine and thought, oh, that's me. And if that didn't give it away to my family that I was clearly homosexual, I don't know what could (laughs) happen.
1: You studied fashion in college, and then you worked as a designer and a director at Zara and Selfridges. Where did because there is a difference between designing and styling.
2: Yeah. How did yeah. you
1: where did you make that transition?
2: Well, I so for a very long time, including uh, big stores, I was styling. Also, I was doing windows. I was deciding what mannequins should look like in a store. So I wasn't doing it for people that I was doing. But I was technically doing it for people. I just wasn't giving one person that makeover. I was hopefully inspiring many people by the windows I was creating or the mannequins I was creating in stores to say, look, when you go in a store, I know it's really intimidating to speak to a store representative, copy the mannequin. And so styling, it felt like a really natural extension. It's funny, I'm sure you know this as well as anyone, most designers don't style their own collections. Usually they'll bring in a, a stylist um, who has, uh, a, a, who has a vision that the stylist sometimes is too close to. They can't, they, they can't style their own product. Um, and so they bring the stylist. However, for me, I love both equally. And I didn't ever feel like I was too close to my own designs to be able to understand how it should be styled. And so I, I wanted both facets uh, of fashion. And I'm so glad that I worked so hard to get both of those. And I for me, one doesn't live without the other.
1: No, and it, what people, I think, don't realize is, especially when you see these women on the red carpet in this, the ones that always look the best whether you like all the elements separately are the ones that have a complete look.
2: Absolutely that it's
1: finished.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it usually is not the designer who decides to put that look together because um, many people don't realize this but when you go when you see someone on that red carpet that brand has said let's say for example it's Versace They've said, uh, yes, you can borrow that dress. But if you want to borrow that dress, we need you to have the head-toe look. We need to have the shoes with it, the bag with it, whatever. Um, and that is usually a look that was put together by a stylist for Versace. It,
1: well, exactly. Um, you know, it's. <laughs> I was just laughing about dressing mannequins. It must be so much easier. I think about my stylist thinking how much easier that must be than having to watch me complain and this is too tight <laughs> and I can't <laughs> breathe. <laughs> And this is uncomfortable. We He used to say to me, I'd be like, I can't breathe. And he used to say to me, that's not my problem.
2: Legitimately, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. So every now and then, I'm like, you'll figure it out. Yeah. It's it, not- it's so you'll figure it out. <laughs> breathe later. You yeah. look great.
1: You look great. I don't, I'm not that interested that you can't breathe. <laughs> Whatever.
2: Yeah, <they> can <laughs> Make
1: um, You moved to New York in 2008 to work in fashion and then to Salt Lake City. Now, this is not a normal tra- trajectory, no. In the fashion world. No. How do you go from the garment district to the seat of Mormonism in a leap? I want to like call your therapist and say, what was wrong? What
2: happened? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, first off, I don't have a therapist. I'm very English. And that means my family's my therapist. Um, however, when it comes well, to... Well, then we need lady, to
1: call them to find out. I know, I know. That is not um, a straight
2: line. You know, though. For me, it was perfect and I've never looked back. And I know that there were probably many opportunities in fashion that were missed because I didn't stay in New York. I really, I wanted love more. And I know, that sounds so, and especially in today's age, like who cares? I'm sure most people think, who cares? Career is the most important. Yeah, career was fine for me. I just wanted to fall in love. And I wanted to be with a person that I thought was better than anybody I'd ever met. And I'd had shitty relationship after shitty relationship. And uh, and I was just sick of having my heart broken. And then on a trip to Salt Lake, I met somebody, fell in love almost instantly. And that person is still my husband today. And I truly am still so happy with him. He makes me so happy. And so as far as career goes, yeah, maybe, (laughs) maybe coming to Salt Lake wasn't the best idea. But as far as real life goes... Uh, it was it was the best thing I ever did. And that's how I see everything uh, that I do for work. I just think that's not my real life. Even now, I love the job that I have and I'm so grateful for it for it. But it's just my job. I have a very real life outside of that job that I do. Um, and, and yeah, that's still the most important thing to me. And so I wouldn't give up Salt Lake for anything.
1: So love brought you to Salt Lake.
2: Yeah. Yeah, not initially. Actually, Lost brought me to Salt Lake initially, if I'm really honest. Yeah, no, um, be honest, I it's me. To come, yeah, When I first started to come to Salt Lake, it was because I thought the boys were so hot and they really were. Um, and I very recently come over from England and English boys don't look like Utah boys. They don't look like American boys, but they definitely don't look like Utah boys. The Utah boys were very put together, very, very groomed. That's probably the Mormon thing. Um, And so they're very clean-cut, but muscles galore. And I was like, oh, this is so nice. (laughs) Um, And so uh, my first trip here, I was like, there are men that live like this? That's insane. And then they they also didn't drink. And I'm Muslim and I don't drink. And so... Both of those things were like, I I couldn't ask for anything better. And so I kept coming back over and over again. And then on one of my trips is when I met my husband, decided, okay, I'm going to move here completely.
1: But how did you even discover this about Salt Lake Boys? I mean, you were going between London and New York.
2: Yeah, but my housemate in New York was from Utah. Ah. Um, I I didn't even, I never heard the word Utah. I never heard the word Mormon. I didn't know what either of those things were. And so when he said you want to come to Utah, I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's a few hours to get there, but I've never seen anywhere else in America. Why not? Um, and so uh, have you ever been to Utah? Have you been to Salt Lake? Yes, yes. It's so pretty. Like, oh, it's it really, so pretty. Oh, my gosh. The first time I got off the flight and looked around, it was like there are mountains everywhere. This is magical. And then when you throw onto the pile, Hot Boys, God, that's a winning, winning competition. And it's very clean very clean. Crime rate's real low. It's just got so much to it. And here's the thing. Uh, to, be, to be very honest, I leave really regularly. Like it's lovely to have this as my base, but I'm not here more than like a week and a half, two weeks a month. The rest of the time I'm gallivanting to New York or California. So this is a great base base.
1: Oh, it's a fantastic base. So
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com At sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
2: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: You got there and you saw this very niche market. Yeah. of fashionable clothes that still it, it complied to all the rules of Mormonism. Yeah.
2: A lot now, of clothing.
1: did you think to yourself, ooh, this is an, a, a, an opportunity, like in a financial opportunity, I can corner the market on this? Or what, what inspired you to even do that? Did you have great girlfriends that needed something to wear?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I was... Uh, so I just moved to Utah. My, uh, t- my visa was about to expire. I was on a, like a tourist visa. And I really wanted to stay. I'd fallen madly in love with Rob. And so I really wanted to stay. There's obviously nothing in fashion in Utah, like no, no major brand in Utah, but there was this modest clothing company that made modest clothing for Mormon women. Um, and so my friend, funnily enough, my my husband's best friend at the time, who's now our best friend, um, worked for this modest clothing company and said, I'm sure if you came to the office and belched, they would give you a job. There's, there's nobody in town that really does what you do. So you can do whatever you want. Um, and so I went and met the owner, and weirdly, rightly so. Uh, by the time the interview ended, she was like, What job do you want here? You can have whatever job you want. And so um, I ended up working there. I was there for two years, perfectly happy. The style of clothing that they were making was okay. It was just really plain. It was basically Gap
0: 15 years ago. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Really, really, really safe. Um, But it served a purpose. And then the company was being sold. And so I asked the owner who I was good friends with if she would mind if I created my version of it It seems that she was selling hers. And so um, I create, I wanted to create a fashionable version of modest clothing, a company that we had never really seen before in Utah and definitely not in Mormon culture. Um, And so I started a brand that was basically just London style clothes or English style clothes that just so happened to cover Mormon Mormon bodies. Um, And, I was shocked that it did so well. Uh, the first two years were really, 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 really off, But after the first two years, it sold like gangbusters. I could not believe it. And it wasn't that I ever set out to create a really successful, financially successful brand. I just wanted to create clothes that I thought were hot and dress the girls around me. I never thought that it was going to become what it became. And uh, and within two or three years, it became really, really great that I started creating other companies based off the back of that, which were all modest clothing companies.
1: That You found a good, sweet spot in the market. Yeah. But I do have to ask, because you were raised Muslim, even though you're not very religious, and then you moved to Salt Lake, neither group is really openly accepting of gay people. I was going to yeah. say gay men, but it's across the board. Um, how, you know, you and the gays and the Jews, not super popular in those two demographics. <laughs> how did you even get through it as a child, but also then living in a different type of environment, but with the same, uh, yeah. you know, bias,
2: biases. Yeah. Um, You know, being in Utah as a Muslim gay man isn't that different from how I, was, uh, how I always lived. So the, the Utah component is a, a moot point for me. Um, when I was a kid, I always knew that I was gay. I didn't know anything else. And so uh, uh, there was no way to reconcile anything other than I believe in my religion. I was raised on religion and I, I truly believe my religion. And I also 100% understand that I'm going, there's no changing that. And so for a long time, I thought, OK, uh, eventually I'm going to be expected to marry and I'm not going to marry a woman. I don't want to ru- ruin someone's life by getting an arranged marriage, which is very typical in my culture. Uh, and then the woman finding out potentially weeks, months, years down the line that I'm not physically attracted to her, sexually attracted to her in any way. Um, and so I, I honestly thought for the longest time, I probably won't live past 25. 25 is usually at the age where we get married. And after 25, it gets very difficult to get married. This was for my community back in the day. And so I thought, OK, uh, I'm going to live life as fully as I can. And then who knows what will happen? I will either run away or if I can't find a way to run away to another country, I will probably commit suicide that was just i was so matter of fact about it because i'd never seen a a a queer muslim before ever um wait why'd you call yourself a queer muslim sorry oh i thought you
1: said i thought you had i thought you had it was a you had condensed the two words (laughs) um
2: i wish i'd come up with something funnier but no yeah um like j-lo like something (laughs) (laughs) um and so yeah i'd never seen a queer muslim on tv or in movies no actually no people of color really who are queer and so i just thought oh they we just don't exist we 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 either hide away or we die they're the only options um and thankfully by the time i got to that age 24 25 um i thought no fuck it i've got nothing to hide and i don't care if nobody else came before me um Yes, and I moved away to America, but I wasn't necessarily running away. I just wanted a better life. Um, and so, yeah, that, That's I, I don't know if I ever reconciled it. It was just matter of fact for me. I just wasn't willing to let my community, family, anyone, say that I wasn't allowed to live and be happy just because I was gay. And I wasn't going to let anyone say I could be Muslim just because I'm gay. I love both parts equally. Right.
1: And then moving to salt lake you're moving to the seat of mormonism yeah which is also a very sexually restrictive yeah uh, religion. However,
2: because i'm an outsider i don't think they really care what outsiders do and if anything because i'm brown and i'm british they gosh they even before queer eye I, i've been i was hit nine years before queer eye I was treated so nicely because I was just this exotic person in town. Utah, when I first moved here 15 years ago, was the whitest place I've ever seen in my life. And so there was this person bouncing around town who was way too overly confident and and had this very strong English accent and gorgeous brown skin. (laughs) And therefore... Nobody ever said anything. And here's the thing about Utah, especially the Mormon community and culture. If they think something of you, you would never know it. They they may say it behind your back, but they're not going to say it to your face. Um, like politeness and manners are very, very important. And so I've, I've truly never experienced any kind of discrimination here. That's amazing. And I, will say, and I will say there is a massive queer community. And so I think that they realize that the community is just not going anywhere.
1: Right. Well, and soon you'll be allowed to buy alcohol on Sundays. Who knew? (laughs) Um, Netflix decides to do a reboot of Queer Eye. How did they find you?
2: Okay. In a couple of weird ways. So... One of the businesses that I created. This is a long-winded story, so I'm going to try
1: no, to no. I'm loving this. So go go right ahead. I, I feel that. like I should just get a sandwich that. and curl up and listen. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, one of the businesses that I owned was with an, a blogger at the time, influencer, and she was a really popular influencer. And she wanted to create a brand. She always um, supported one of my brands. And then when she was creating her own brand, she said, would you like to be a partner of mine? I don't know how to create a brand. You do. Can we do this together? Yeah, sure. We're already friends. Yep, sure. And then this manager from L.A. reached out uh, to say, hey, there's this girl that's your colleague who has a bunch of sisters Uh, And on on social media, they're really interesting to watch. Would she ever be interested in doing the show? Um, So they were considering doing the show. The networks were saying, this is way too white. Four white girls in very white Utah. It's never going to fly. This was 2016-ish, 17 actually. And they were like, no, 16. It's never going to fly. We need people of color also. And so um, the manager was like, would you ever be interested in being on? I was like, I'll be in the background. People will know me as her business partner, but that's it. Um, I've noticed I am a very busy businessman. Okay, fine. Good enough. As long as there's, there's color somewhere. We met with a bunch of networks. We flew out to LA and there was a sizzle reel done. Went to LA, met with uh, E, Bravo, every network, every damn network. We'd meet. We had three days. They were packed full of meetings. And one of those meetings was at Bravo. And uh, the woman at Bravo sat around the table watching the sizzle, chatting to all of us. And I said only a few things because it wasn't my show. Um, I was purely there to add spice, literal spice. And uh, partway through the meeting, she said, look, ladies, you are so nice. I don't want to destroy your family with a reality TV show. You're way too sweet for that. You, young man, I like a lot. And I was like, oh, thanks. She was like, Queer Muslim man who's an immigrant and who is British and has a lot to say, but I was always very opinionated. She was like, There's something we can do with you. I was like, Oh no, thank you so much. I'm not interested. Um, but thanks for being so kind. So we left. And then a few weeks later, this manager got in touch again and said, Netflix is looking for somebody to be the fashion guy on uh on Queer Eye. They've auditioned a bunch of people. And the person who was the head of Unscripted at Netflix is still the head of Unscripted at Netflix. She's used to work at Bravo and a boss at Bravo called her after the meeting saying, I've met somebody today who should be on your show. Um, and it just took her a while to figure out who it was and how to get to me and the rest is history. I, uh, the rest is not history. I said, no, I had no interest. Um, and then a few conversations later, I said, okay, I'll, I'll have the audition.
1: What did your husband think?
2: He was the one who said I should do it. I was really? the one who said absolutely not. Yeah, he. So I had I had talked to him about how shitty it felt to not ever have queer brown people on TV. I was like, yeah, it's all a bunch of white folks, and even they're not. We don't really get their real stories, but especially with brown folks, even non-queer brown folks, straight brown folks. I was like, there are no stories about us in the West at all, and in England. We're the largest minority group. South Asians are the largest minority group in the UK. You will never see us on primetime TV. That's not where we're allowed. Um, And so I used to moan about that to him saying, this is bullshit. Like we're fun, we're entertaining. Our people are loud. We know how to entertain. And so uh, he said, look, I know you don't want to do this show because first off, you're not interested, you've got a business. Secondly, um, I was really worried that I would destroy my entire family, my entire community. I was gay, but I I was in America, nobody needed to know. And if I'd done this show and this show were to be successful, everyone would know. And that could really have some really intense consequences for my family and my friends back home. And so I didn't want that kind of pressure. And my husband was the one who, who was really adamant saying, you have gone on about this for a long time. You might get to be the person who changes things for your community. You might get to be the person that kids look up to saying, if town France can do it, why can't I do it? Um, and so that's why I took the call.
1: You know, it's interesting you you talk about being a leader in and in, in breaking a barrier in that, um, which makes me jump ahead now to uh, beauty and the bleach, which I don't think people realize what a big trend, unfortunately, and I hate using the word trend, yeah this is, will you explain to people sort of in a little bit more in depth on this whole horrible phenomenon and how you, why you decided to do, produce a documentary about it?
2: Yeah. Uh, The the best way to articulate this is I need to explain the difference between racism and colorism first. So the documentary is about colorism. Um, The racism is what one experiences from people outside your own race. Colorism is something you experience from people within your own race. It can also be from people outside your own race, but mostly from people within your own race. Uh, uh, and the suggestion is that you might be too dark to achieve something. Success in general. And so a lot of people who experience colorism, almost every brown person you will ever meet, or black person you've ever meet, you will ever meet, has experienced some form of colorism. Uh, if they, it, you will see this every day, and you may never not have noticed, I'm sure you have, but um, you see the likes of Beyonce, she's gorgeous, she's fair-skinned. Her dad made a comment in the press a long time ago saying if Beyonce wasn't fair-skinned, she wouldn't have gotten the level she had gotten to. You can't argue with that point. You can't. Um, especially not back in the day. And she she came up 25 years ago. Um, and that is the case for every person of colour. If you are seen as dark-skinned, uh, sorry, if you are dark-skinned, you are seen as less likely to achieve certain levels of success if you're within,
1: within your own community
2: within, within your own community yes um and if you're light skinned you are seen as more desirable and therefore will achieve success and that was the case in my community too and so people go to great lengths and those great lengths usually include bleaching your skin to try and become fair like those other people in your community um and because those products are often quite expensive people resort to um black market treatments and so mine i i I felt the pressure from such young age. I was slightly darker uh, than I am now. And in my community, that was dark. And so uh, from, uh, from the earliest memories, I remember in conversation, well, this person has had a baby. Oh, the only question is, how, how fair are they? Are they fair? This person's getting married. How fair is the bride? That was always the question. And so when you hear that, practically every day you realize that there's such great value held in the color of your skin and so by the time I got to nine years old I started bleaching my skin really um, and uh, I, I couldn't afford it so I stole my cousin's bleach and uh and when I say my cousin's bleach it's because everyone was doing it I knew I could find it somewhere um and, uh, and it, it hurt real bad it was really mm. uncomfortable and so after a few days I start thinking there's I can't continue. with This is so painful, regardless of the results. And you have to keep up with it because it's like you going on vacation, getting a tan uh, within a couple of weeks, it's gone. You will get rid of those top layers of skin and then it's gone. And so I wasn't willing to do that for the rest of my life. But then when I got to 16, 17, I wasn't dating. Nobody was really interested. And so And there were so many comments. I was on a dating website, so many comments about the color of my skin. I just thought, okay, the only way I'm going to be able to date is if I lighten up. No one's going to see me as desirable if I've got my brown skin. And I was in a town that was really quite racist and there weren't that many brown people, especially not queer brown people. So there was no way I was going to date unless I looked more Mediterranean, not brown. Um, And so I started bleaching again and again, it hurt so much. And so I wanted to... Explore this documentary why we feel like we have to do this where this comes from what kind of treatments are done across the world is it just my people it was so disgustingly eye-opening we met with people all over the world from every brown culture or from every color, uh, community of color you can imagine we met with those people not everyone made it into this documentary but everywhere across the world has their version of skin bleaching has their version of uh, of colorism has their version of making people feel shitty because they're not light
1: enough. It's interesting. I'm just thinking back. I was a history major and I'm just thinking back to that in a, in a strange way, it even become within the the white community, the fairer skin was seen as more desirable because it meant you didn't work out on the fields that you had money.
2: Yeah. Queen Victoria powdered her skin, so it was very clear that she was nobility.
1: Yeah, it's it's you, you know you, you really seem to you just in this conversation have opened my eyes uh, to it. What do you hope the out what what conversation do you hope the documentary will spur? Because in my opinion, as fucked up as the fashion and beauty industry is with inclusivity, they've really embraced. Uh, makeup and products for the brown and black community. I mean, I go back and I think about Emon being really the first one to develop a makeup line specifically for black and brown skin. And now it's a norm. And I never think the fashion industry is ahead in anything. We can get into a deeper conversation about body inclusivity in this, but this seems like the one area that they've almost been ahead of the curve.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, they had, Naomi Campbell on the cover of both, what, 25, 30 years ago? Um, pro- probably even a longer than that. And so, yes, I do believe that the fashion industry is better than most. However, they still have uh, uh, campaigns for brightening cream. They just changed the name. So, yes, they can counterbalance it by having a black model like Naomi on a cover, but they still have campaigns in their magazines for brightening cream they stopped calling it bleaching cream because it became too obvious and it came, became too controversial. That brightening cream is still a bleaching cream. It's doing exactly what a ble- bleaching cream does. So yes, I understand that the fashion community is definitely ahead of the curve. For sure it is. But they still managed to find a way to knock those people of color down. Um, and when it comes to the message or the, the hope of this documentary, my goal uh, was never to say no one should ever bleach. I'm not ignorant enough to not understand the importance of people having access to skin bleaching cream. For some people, especially in the in countries outside of the West, they rely on that to be able to get a job. They rely on that to be able to get married. If they don't have that, they probably won't get married. They probably won't get a job. And that's just the way of the world. There's there's no changing people's mentality within a heartbeat by saying, look, this is causing you people real damage by you thinking that they're less desirable because they're dark skinned that I can't, none of us can convince them of that. This is generations upon generations upon generations of conditioning. And so for a lot of these people, if we say all bleaching creams, all bleaching products should be banned we're fucking people over royally. Right. And so my goal isn't necessarily to suggest we need to get rid of everything that encourages you to want to lighten your skin. My goal was only ever to make people understand the reason why they believe they're doing it and to hopefully find strength in themselves to realize they're beautiful without it. They can be successful without it. They need to find a way and really make peace with their own skin tone because we can't change anybody else's perception of us. But all we can do is try and make peace with who we are and what we have. Um, And so for me, it's still every now and then I still have those horrible thoughts about myself, but very few and far between. I got to a point many years ago when I started to really appreciate my skin color, and I'm not saying this to ha- to convince myself. I love my skin color. I think my skin color is gorgeous. When I go on a beach, I'm like, I have the most beautiful skin tone, glistens beautifully, tans nicely, doesn't age. I mean, I'm 40 and I don't have a wrinkle yet. I'm oh God, glad a of- gay
1: man's dream.
2: It's lovely. I'm so grateful for my skin tone, and God, I wish I could have told myself that 20 years ago, saying to myself. You will get there one day where you'll realize just how grateful you should be for this skin. Um, and so that's all I want from this. I want people to understand where this is coming from, why they're thinking the things that they're doing, they're thinking, and to hopefully encourage them to feel differently about it. And to also hopefully encourage people who are thinking those bad things about people, for them to think, yes, I'm fair-skinned. And maybe let's not be a bitch about those people who aren't fair-skinned. Let's not make them feel bad about it.
1: So to completely pivot to a shallow topic, which is where I'm always very happy.
2: <laughs> Who do I think is the hottest white chick? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: um, how did you and your husband meet?
2: Um, uh, Melissa, I I know how basically you're a gay man. Um, Me? Do you, oh, yeah. Yes, yes, of course. You uh, must have heard of this website from one of your gays this was 16 years ago. It, it got, it, I don't know if it shut down or it went under or whatever, 14 years ago. But there was a website called Connection. It was like the biggest dating website for gay men. Did you ever hear of this? No, the first no? one I
1: became very aware of was Grinder.
2: Oh, okay. Grindr is way later than me. Like that was like, a, I think 10 years ago. Yeah. I was already in it by that point. Um, and so it's a much younger person's game. <laughs> so um, it, the Connection was basically Facebook for gaming. Uh, It was the kind of site where you wouldn't send nudes. You would actually be really inappropriate to to send nudes on the likes of connection. And so it was just a way to... Connect, Make a friend. Yeah, connect, but make a friend. People always uh, understood it's to date. And yeah, you could absolutely date a person or meet a person and just have sex. But it wasn't really for that. It was for men who really wanted to meet somebody and date. And so um, I I was in Utah. I'd made a few gay friends and we would go to the gay bar here. And at that point, I was the only, probably the only person of color that was in that gay bar. And so the boys that they were interested in would gravitate towards me because I was the only thing that looked like no one else. Um, and, and let me tell you, a British accent gets you a long way in this country, especially in Utah. And so I uh, th- they were getting really frustrated. and They said, we're going to put you on the state website where nobody can hear your stupid accent and they won't fall for your charms. I was like, okay, fine. And so they put me on this website and uh, the next day, this man called Rob France reached out and said, you you don't look like you're around here. Um, and I meanly replied, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. And apparently that's all he needed to realize that was the one. <laughs> that's <laughs> um, quite the line. Yeah. And so he asked me out uh, and I said, no, I'm not interested in dating. My friends put me on this. I'm um, actually I just got done with a breakup. I'm going to be single for two years. I'm trying to see my way across America. I'm not interested. Which
1: is basically um, means you're going to get into a relationship whenever you put those parameters. I know.
2: I know, but I was so determined. I was so freshly single and I was like, I'm done. I just need two years of a hoe phase because I'd never had a hoe phase. I was like, I'm going to spend two years and then I'll start looking for a date again. Because I was young, I was 24. And, uh, and yeah, I just couldn't resist. Um, And so I gave him lunch. I was like, look, we'll go out for lunch and that's it. And we went on our first date, had lunch. And then within the first few minutes, I was like, ah, shit. I really like this guy. Um, And so we kept seeing each other every day. And then we got married a year later.
1: That's amazing. (laughs) That's
2: it. we are lesbians. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to be
1: remiss if I don't ask you this question. These questions. What is the biggest trend you see coming?
2: I'm hoping we go back to um, classic where just – formal wear I'm so I'm so hoping maybe it's not a trend I see coming it's a trend I'm hoping will happen that we just move away from streetwear and stop wanting to look ugly like there's so many times I just think you chose to look terrible today I know you did like I know you can see that nothing that you're wearing works together but you chose it because that's what people are telling you is okay can't you just look nice
1: yeah exactly so who is your go-to designer
2: a couple I love Gucci always um Isabel Moran I think is fantastic Celine,
1: good stuff I like those too what's your daily uniform
2: if I'm at work so if my daily uniform at home is really simple I'm in sweats I've I've got a toddler and I'm up and down constantly I'm in sweats um but if I'm out and about it's a slim jean not a skinny jean it's a 501 um with a good boot, usually a, a, a modern version of a cowboy boot with a couple of inch heel, um, a leather jacket and a tee, really classic.
1: Tan, this has been such a joy. I could talk to you forever. We didn't even get into the Great British Bake Off.
2: We didn't I want, even did get. Notice? I
1: know. I was going to ask you all about how you won. So I'm going to have to have you back.
2: You can have me back whenever you want. You're you, an angel. Oh, I'm so you.
1: This is wonderful. Dan, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ahuda Media
1: codexin.